with apologies to Stevie Wonder for cutting him off. I'm J.R. Woodward, and this is our social landscape. My guest today is journalist, author, editor, and educator Linda Villarosa, whose book Under the Skin, The Hidden Toll of Racism on American Lives and the Health of Our Nation, was a 2022 Pulitzer Prize finalist. After graduating from the University of Colorado, she completed a journalism fellowship at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. She spent years as the executive editor of Essence Magazine and later was the health section editor for the New York Times, a publication she still contributes to. In fact, her 2018 piece in the Times titled Why America's Black Mothers and Babies Are in a Life or Death Crisis became something of a watershed moment in public health research and sowed the seeds for her 2022 book. In addition to her writing, she teaches at the City College of New York in Harlem and CUNY's Craig Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. After a brief bio, we do a quick survey of current health indicators of folks of color, particularly African Americans, before discussing some of the links between history and contemporary times that impact health. The relative effects of race and social class are addressed before we finish with a few thoughts going forward. So thank you, uh, Linda Villarosa, for being here. Um, If you wouldn't mind, maybe just tell me a a very brief bio, but mostly about how you took this road, uh, how you, this became really kind of your life's work, this particular topic of health and race. Well, I started my real journalism career at Essence Magazine, where I was a, you know, the science No, I started at Essence Magazine where I was the health editor and it was focused on my work was focused on personal health. So that meant if you do everything right and you take great care of yourself, then you will be healthy. That meant you would exercise and you drink water and you'd eat right. And I thought education was the way to make individual people Essence is a black woman's magazine, individual people healthy. And then if they did everything right and made sure their other loved ones were doing everything right, it would lift the whole health status of the race. And little by little, I started to realize that is not going to change everything. That will help individual people. It will certainly help some groups, but Um, some of the problem has nothing to do with how people eat. It has nothing to do with a lack of exercise or drinking water. It has to do with structural issues, including where people live, um, how they're treated in the healthcare system, and how they're treated in society. So I shifted as I learned more about public health, but also went through some personal learnings and um, personal health crises Mm -hmm. that shifted my own focus. So what you just mentioned about um, the structural things, where do we stand right now? Um, you know, I would think most, many at least, maybe most white folks walking down the street now probably don't really think there are significant inequities in the healthcare system. Maybe if they're poor, they might realize there's some economic ones, but they probably don't um, pay much attention to or even realize the large gaps in, say, morbidity or mortality between whites and and folks of color. Um and if they did notice them, they might end up going back to those personal decisions and personal responsibility and stuff like that. So um, what would you say your research here that kind of refutes that, that what would be the current status of 
healthcare, health for people of color, particularly African-Americans, and the role of, of racism or racial discrimination, institutional discrimination currently keeping it uh, in place? Well, I think that I don't judge people that think that this is only an issue of class. Mm -hmm. And I don't judge people that think it's only an issue of personal responsibility. Mm -hmm. um, but what I try to do is use evidence and be thoughtful about how it, I explain it so they understand that is not the only way. Mm -hmm. how, it, how, it, how it shifted for me was when I found out, when I was um, learning about maternal and infant mortality, and um, I had a friend explaining it to me, a friend, it, we were, it was a Saturday, we were playing soccer. Um, I play on an intergenerational, all genders uh, oh, <laughs> soccer fine. group. Yeah, and this friend worked for the Center for Reproductive Rights. And she was saying, did you know that um, the United States is the only country where the number of um, women or birthing people uh, that die in childbirth is rising? And I'm like, Okay, no, I didn't know that, but mm, not surprising. The mm -hmm. U.S. is mass. We have all these issues, class issues, and you know, blah blah. Um, and I mean, the only rich country. Sure. And then she said, "Did you know that black women are three to four times more likely to die or almost die than a white woman? So, and it's worse in New York City, where it's six to eight times." Wow. I said, "Okay, I didn't know that, but still, not a giant shock. I'm sure that all that is happening in the deep south or in the poorest pockets." Um, of where people are having babies. And then she looks at me and she said, did you know a black woman with a college degree, including a master's degree, a PhD, a JD, an MD, or an MD is more likely to die or almost die or lose her baby than a white woman with an eighth grade education? Then I stopped and I said, no, I did not know that. And I'm surprised. And I'm I'm finding it hard to believe. Right. Since then, to, to bring us up to present, these um, statistics are still in place, even though this is, you know, I wrote my first story about this, ran in 2018. Mm -hmm. So, and a whole bunch of, you know, legislation followed, a whole bunch of awareness followed, a whole bunch of action and changes followed. But the this is still stubbornly in place. And now we've branched beyond just education to wealth. So about a year ago, there was, I remember I woke up and I was reading, you know, the New York Times where I am associated with. Right. And the headline was, even for wealthy Black families, this maternal mortality is um, much worse. So why don't wealth and education protect you? Um, and then it also is similar, not exactly the same, but similar for life expectancy, okay. where even if you have money and education, but you're black, you are still you still live fewer years, especially if you're a black man, man. Mm -hmm. And that is hard to parse out. And it's something that, you know, it does not go with the usual explanations around poverty and, you know, around education. So that's when I started thinking, you know what, I need to learn more and shift my own thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's what I've done, but that still exists. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the role, uh, a couple of things I wrote down as I was going through some of your work, the role of segregation. Um, I think you, w one way you presented it was um, even if Blacks want to move, they often find resistance to moving out of a certain area or into another area. 
Uh, and that reminded me of like white flight. You know, um, I, I think I think studies, most studies that I've seen at least show that people of color are much more open to living with diverse groups than whites are. And so they they kind of they kind of flee. Um, and then, of course, the real estate practices and, and, and the like. And it reminded me I had a, a student send me a Craigslist ad a couple years ago, maybe 2016 now, uh, a house here for rent in Jacksonville on the west side. Uh, white folks wanted will uh, lighter skin blacks can ap apply, but with an additional deposit. And um, and so I started. We'll talk to my class about it. And like, what if that neighborhood is in a really nice house is in a really nice neighborhood? And there's a hospital there. There's a park there. There's a pool there. You know, their class isn't keeping them out. It's a segregation. You know, that racial segregation that's keeping them out. So do you think? Um, what role do you think residential segregation uh, plays in continuing and maintaining these health differences? Well, I think it works on two levels. One is just what you said. Um, many of us aren't uh, people of color, especially black people aren't welcome in some of historically white areas, but also why should we have to move? Oh. Why do, why are the, we the ones that have to move in order to be healthful? And if you look at the, you know, historical practices, including redlining, including contract buying, which affected my own family in Chicago, why are we the ones that our neighborhoods are um, not as healthful, don't have as many grocery stores, don't have as many um, parks, don't have, and certainly um, have dirty water and air. So that is part of it. And mm -hmm. if that is an institutional problem or it's a historical problem, that is unfair. Mm -hmm. And, um, but also there are places where we're just simply not welcome or, mm -hmm. or alternately don't feel comfortable. Um, how I grew up, you know, I was one of those people who after the civil rights movement, my family moved from um, the South side of Chicago to Denver. And we were greeted with written on our garage door in word, go home. Mm -hmm. So that is how more unwelcome could you be? <laughs> right. I mean, we ended up living there, but it was, you know, hard. It was mm -hmm. a struggle knowing that you're not welcome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, that's a good point. That brings up the environmental um, racism that you talk some about as well. And of course, Flint, you know, not that long ago, one thing I, I did like about your um, one of your part of your analysis was about the environmental movement and people of color not really uh, being having a seat at the table. And what it reminded me of was uh, maybe it's been two years now. I interviewed a woman named Robin James, and she's the gender and equity advisor for the Nature Conservancy. And she says that um, most environmental problems affect people that of color and women, particularly because they're fishing in these small villages on the coast. But if you look at any of the environmental summits, there's no women really on there. And it's mostly, well, not always, but, you know, mostly white men. And so it reminded me that, yeah, there's uh, a lot of groups that are really feeling the brunt of these environmental problems are the, have the least say in, and, you know, and they're just kind of getting the, the dumping in Dixie, right? The Robert Bullard, Robert Bullard book. So you brought up the historical stuff. So that's a nice segue. So we'll go, go there. You know, I live in Florida. So our governor, Ron DeSantis, and the legislature has made a big deal about cracking down on what they think is like woke indoctrination in schools and they're not allowed to talk about critical race theory or anything that um, they don't like this idea that things that are happening now can be influenced by 
problems in the past. They don't even really want you talking about the problems in the past, but definitely not how there are continuing links. So um, what are some, you brought in the redlining, what are some of the other things you think historically, and you could go back as far as you want to go back, Thomas Jefferson or Cartwright or any of the, you know, the eugenics, wherever you want to go, but some of those things that you think were big players in how we're still continuing to see the discrepancies in health. Well, I think you can start with, I was part of the 1619 project, which I'm sure is banned in your state. Oh yeah, long gone. Um, Yeah, long gone. (laughs) Um, But I didn't know so much about the medical racism in the past. So um, one of the things that has a through line to the present is the idea, the false idea, the false notion that Black people have lower lung function than white people. And it was used in the past, perhaps started, probably started by Thomas Jefferson, but definitely um, pushed forward by Samuel Cartwright, um, who used the um, a spirometer that had a race correction. Mm. And the idea was, which is false and only supported um, slavery, free labor um, you know, for sure. Black people, yeah. um, was that by working in the fields, it was good for your for black people who had lower lung function. So that would get your get you in shape. Yeah. Um, fast forward to the future, many people still believe that. I had an email today. Will you come to our medical um, group because you need to debate this um, pul- pulmonologist who insists that black people as a group still have lower lung function. Mm-hmm. And many people use a spirometer, which is... Uh, measures lung function, which has a race correction, which assumes the machine that um, black people have about 10 to 15% lower lung function. And I was thinking about that because I grew up in Denver, the mile high city. Right. So I was, I ran track. I was running all the time. All of our family was really in good shape. So we actually have the lung function of Serena Williams. We're the Mm -hmm. Serena Williams of lung function. All right. But then here's the race correction for someone like me as an individual human being, because I'm black, I get the race correction that makes the assumption that my lungs are deficient when they're actually super lungs. And that is not just unfair, it's bad medicine. (laughs) That is bad medicine to use measurements that make zero sense. Yeah. You said in your book, black people have long been blamed for the health problems that plague them with little acknowledgement of the condition of their communities. You know, and you could, I think we could expand the communities out. Um, so the redlining and the, even the Social Security program in, in the 30s, you know, only applying to certain careers and, you know, certain folks and things like that. Um one more I'd like you to talk. Could you talk about this race correction stuff? Is there another? What is there any more that you can think of um, where something is, a legacy like that is still being used, um, even even if it's not strictly in the medical field? Because I'm thinking of the um, the NFL concussion settlement. Have you followed that? How they um, were you know they get, had to give a billion dollars to say twenty thousand former players. Um, and they they stopped it. I think it was only like 2021 or 2022, but the wording, it said the race norms used in the test assume that black former players start with worse cognitive functioning than white former players. That means a black player's cognitive skills would have to fall lower thresholds than a white former player's for a black player to qualify for a payout. So this is 2021 and NFL, and they're still they're still doing that. Are there anything any others you think that might might be lingering? I think the the two that still linger are the 
EGFR, which is kidney function. So um, the kidney function has a race correction and it's about, it's under the false assumption that black people as a group have higher muscle mass. So that means we retain um, more creatinine. Okay. But anyway, so when, but that affects your lung function. So the, the false, the original false idea is that black people as a group have more muscle mass, which makes our kidney function actually measure slightly better. So there's a race correction um, around this. Okay, so um, there were these two medical students recently who told me this story that they were in class and the textbook said, you know, was talking about this race correction because of the idea that, you know, black people as a group have higher muscle mass. So the student raises a hand, he says, what if the black person is a skinny dude like Barack Obama? And then the white person is this big muscular guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever. Uh-huh. How? And then the professor got mad and was per- saying, no, this is in the book. So yeah. even though this is outdated and false, yeah. it's still in used in current medical practice. Uh-huh. The other thing it's more subtle is the idea that black people have more tolerance to pain. And so this is straight out of, you know, Jefferson, <laughs> right? Did, was it Jefferson even that talked about that? Or was it after Jefferson? It was somebody I remember early saying that they have, you know, more pain tolerance and things, higher pain threshold and stuff. It was Thomas Jefferson, higher pain tolerance. And, you know, heartbreakingly, when I was reading this, it was also reading Jefferson's writings. It was also higher tolerance to emotional pain, which meant that it gave um, cover to people saying, oh, we can kill your family and take your children away because you don't feel the same kind of emotional pain. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. is old, but Mm -hmm. that has also stuck in modern medical practice. Um, I talked about it in the past with, um, with physicians who like J. Marion Sims, who operated on enslaved women without any kind of anesthesia, even, even, it's understandable when there was none, but then even after there was anesthesia, he was still operating under the false assumption that black women have this, black people have this really high tolerance to pain. If you fast forward to current medical practice, um, there are a whole bunch of studies that talk about physicians and other clinicians saying, oh, black people need less anesthesia for the same kinds of operation because of different um, tolerance to pain. And this is in current medical practice and even among medical students. Wow. That is not good. And I remember when I was talking about this on a, on a radio show and I had a whole bunch of people call in to say how badly they were treated and they didn't get proper pain medication mm-hmm. when they were hurt. And part of the idea is that when we as black people ask, say we're in pain, we're treated as though we're drug seeking wow. and just trying to get over and get some extra pain um, medication. So that is something that is in current medical practice, but based on something from the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. P- Americans are kind of over-medicated and under-medicated, you know, and, and in many ways too, you know, because of that fear. It was um, interesting because I got a, a, I sometimes get people to say, oh, that's why the current opioid crisis has, you know, that because white people got addicted to it. And I said, well, one that has kind of narrowed. <laughs> There's, a, you know, the racial differential in the pain in the opioid crisis is now narrowing. But also, you still don't want a bunch of black people who are saying we are in pain and we're not getting treated well. 
Right. Yeah. And I'm sure it's, it's like I said, many people are under medicated for that, for that reason. Um, and you've hit on this already. So I don't know if you want to say anything else about it, but the, the, the race versus class issue is um, in sociology. This has been, you know, it's always pops up back, probably the Wilson Willie debate, you know, Wilson, William Julius Wilson and uh, Charles Burt Willie back in the eighties through whatever. Um, but, and there's still a number of people that say, you know, a rising tide floats all boats. We got to fix social class. Everybody will be better and get swept up. And that other people say, of course, you know, you experience your race differently, depending on your class, your class differently, depending on your race. And so you wrote, I love this quote, money may buy good health care, but when you're black in America, it can't buy good health. So um, there is we we know that there's not a race can't be a proxy for class and vice versa. So how do we going forward, how do we tease out the racial component, treat it separately and work on it as we're also working on, say, the social class issues? And I don't want to undercut the, you know, the level to which people who are living in poverty um, are in pain and don't get the sure, sure. whatever they need, including the basics and including healthcare. I think one way we could, you know, look at this is to say we in the United States we're the only, de- you know, developed wealthy country that does not provide adequate healthcare for all people. We're the ones, we're the outliers in that, so we mm-hmm. don't have universal access to healthcare. So if that were fixed, certainly some of our problems would go away, mm-hmm. but not all of them because some of them have nothing to do with a- access and and even when there is access, people in the in healthcare, people of color, black people, don't get treated the same. And how I um, thought about it was I looked at a document called Unequal Treatment. It's 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it was published 20 years to this year. So they're going to be a follow-up, which will be super oh. interesting okay, to see. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So Unequal Treatment looked at 483 other studies, and it was looking at race in healthcare. And what it did was the, you know, the people were smart. They were saying, we've got to remove class. So we're only going to study racial groups where class or access is equal. And the one study that really got to me was about diabetes and amputation. So it looked at two groups of people, black patients and white patients. They had the equal severity of diabetes. They also had equal access to healthcare, but black people were much more likely to have an amputation. So that mm-hmm. doesn't make a lot of sense. Why would just being black mean you'd get your leg amputated? And that's a huge you know, thing. And the severity was the same. The other one is if you look at maternal mortality, you know, I said the statistic where an educated, um, wealthy um, black person woman birthing person is more likely to die or or almost die or lose her baby than a white woman with an eighth grade education or who's poor. But also the the discrepancy is is widest at the richest end. So if everyone has the same ax money mm-hmm. and education, why would the death rate be higher, um, you know, the gap be higher when people are have that equal access to healthcare and same wealth? Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in raw numbers, it's worse for people who are disadvantaged, um, you know, financially, but the gap is wider at the wealthier, more educated end. So yeah. that is saying something that there's something that is beyond sure. class and sure. education that is going on. And that is unequal treatment. So what's your uh, magic bullet solution here, Linda? I'm thinking about that 
that uh, email you got today. You go and you debate this physician who may be in good conscience is saying this is what all the medical data is saying, and you're going to try to convince him that that medical data is flawed by de by default, by definition. Like, how do we? What's your? If you had the magic key, how would we get there? What would we do? I think with him, I'm kind of excited. I'm going to, I've already pulled up. It's not even until April. I've already started doing my research. And I also have um, an acquaintance who wrote a book about this topic. So I'm going to call her, mm -hmm. um, she's a professor at Yale, and say, um, if you were told this or asked this question, how would you respond? So I'm going to come prepared. Mm -hmm. um, what I do is I use evidence and I think a lot about evidence. I also listen to the voices of people. I had this super interesting, though sad, thing happen when my book um, came out in 2022. I got the hit the jackpot and it was reviewed on the cover of the New York Times book review. And I got one of those reviews that was like, usually they're like, blah, blah, blah. The book is good. The book is this. The book is that. But so I didn't have a but in my review. It was just like this great review written by this black woman in the middle of a book review, she told her personal story. This is a New York Times right. <laughs> book reviewer, right. told her personal story about being treated so terribly when during childbirth. She, I think she ended up losing her baby, but she right. told this terrible story of what happened. And she said she had read my writing and was trying to do everything right and still felt bad after. Mm -hmm. um, and I just thought of that and I'm thinking, my God, you know, like, <laughs> but so what I'm saying is we still need awareness of this. We still need to keep talking about this, that it is. And, you know, and I am not dismissing poverty as, sure, sure, sure. you know, as a problem, right. but I am saying it goes beyond and we have to look at race separately. I think what, where, what makes me happy is when I go visit medical schools or midwifery schools or nursing schools or talk to public health students and they're on fire and they're like, no, we do not want the professor to be using this outmoded kidney function measurement, race correction. Okay. We want to be better providers and look at individuals that all black people don't have X or don't do X. That is bad medicine. We don't want to go into the field like that. Okay. And I think that's what excites me. That seems like a good place to start with the clinicians themselves, but is there a larger, you go back to your function, structural institutional beginning part you were talking about. Is that enough to change the structures and institutions kind of going from the bottom up or do we need to make larger changes? And I always get cynical when I say that because it seems like the fox is guarding the chicken coop, right? Like how do we get Congress or whatever to change when there's so much money coming in from people that, like the way that things are right now, maybe it has to come from that, that ground up, do you think? Or, or is there a voting booth? Like, I don't know. Well, I think what's interesting now is like, a, I'm a glass half way full person. Okay. <laughs> and um, what the contention that we are feeling now, we're feeling it like, you know, I have young adult children, so mm -hmm. they are super activist. -y. Sure. And then I have a 93 year old mother, you know, they're like abolition. We just need to get rid of the whole system and start over, burn it down. Yeah, and my yeah. mom's like, all you got to do is vote. If we just uh -huh. vote, we're going to be fine. <laughs> and so I'm somewhere in the middle. Uh -huh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like the, the, you know, argument or the conversations that come out of this. I also see in the contention that is happening right now and the polarization of um, ideas and thoughts and beliefs. 
I, in my book, I mentioned that the activist writer, poet Audre Lorde said, when things are in the midst of change, change it they don't change easily. It dies ugly. It goes mm. out with a fight. And right. I think we're in the dying ugly going out with a fight right now. So that's what I'm looking at. It's like things are changing. And, you know, the resistance to change is the ugly fight. And that's what I see now. And, it, you know, it's cl- the old ways are clinging on. Please don't pull the plug on me. But it's like your time's over. <laughs> the, the train's out of the station. The toothpaste is out of the tube. Um, it is, I think we're in the midst of change. And it may not be as big a change as my children want, but we cannot go back to the way things were. warm thank you to Linda Villarosa for taking some time out of her busy schedule to give me her thoughts on such a pressing national issue. Unfortunately, as my recent guest and health policy scholar Aaron Carroll concluded, I don't think the issue of health care is near the top of the list of priorities for national politicians, at least not Donald Trump and Joe Biden, our two presumptive frontrunners for the 2024 election at this point. I'm continually confounded by the lack of a concrete, constructive dialogue at the national level about how to improve our healthcare system. And Linda's work shows us that the problems are not solely due to money, not just do you have money or don't you, do you have access to healthcare or don't you. Money and access matter, of course, but these problems strike a deep, deep chord in our national racial psyche. My friend and colleague David Jaffe and I have argued about this for years, as he, like many, sees these issues strictly in terms of class and rejects racial essentialism. But I believe our population's health is a good example of the limits to strictly focusing on social class and rolling your eyes at race-based programs. Social class is not a proxy for race, and the effects of our unique American racial heritage might not be more patent and pronounced than in the differential healthcare system experiences of whites and people of color. I hope you enjoyed our conversation, and if you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview, and I'll remind you that one of the purposes of this blog is to engage in public sociology, which tries to bring academic discussions out to the street. So please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and password. Then you can comment after each post. At the very least, please feel free to email me your comments, and I'll be sure to respond. Finally, let me tell you that Tashi Reagan is singing How Long in the background right now, and the episode started with Stevie Wonder's Living for the City. And if you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, email me jr at oursociallandscape.com. And thank you for listening.